0: A human may be bearing undiminished deity, the glory of the nations, a light for all to see, and hope
1: pleasant Christmas and you're very welcome it's good to see you again just before we start let me remind you that we are meeting again this evening our focus obviously is on Jesus and today we're going to be looking this morning at Revelation chapter 1 and what that shows us about Jesus and then uh, 6 p.m. this afternoon we'll be looking at Revelation chapter 5 Jesus the Lord of history And then uh, next Sunday, if things go according to plan, Steve will be here. He hasn't been well over Christmas. We're hoping he'll be okay by next weekend. Uh, But if things don't go according to plan, uh, you'll have me again, and we'll start 2 Peter. But uh, otherwise, Steve will be here, and 2 Peter will start on the 10th of January. I think that's all I need to mention in terms of what's going on. Uh, Nothing between now and next Sunday. We're going to begin our time of worship by reminding ourselves of the great truths of our faith, the truths that we build our lives on, and we're going to do that by saying together the Apostles' Creed, a summary of the Christian faith that the church has been using since its very early days. So if you'll stand with me, please, we'll join in saying the Apostles' Creed. We believe in God the Father Almighty from where he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy worldwide church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our first song reminds us that these great realities, many of these Realities that we've just been speaking about began to become reality on a silent night in Bethlehem. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for that silent night when the Creator came to be our Savior. We praise you for the dawn of saving grace at Christmas. And as we begin to look to the new year, we thank you that our Savior is Lord, He is Lord not just of our past, but of our future too. He is Lord of the years. We thank you that he is no longer a child in a manger. Now he is our king, awesome in his majesty and his glory. So as we worship your son Jesus this morning, will you show us again his power to save, his power to keep, and his power to bring us to heaven. Amen. We're going to have a reading now from Luke chapter 2, which picks up after Jesus' birth, as two different people begin to realize just who it is, this child, that they're dealing with, uh, the future that he has, and the glory that he has. We're going to read from Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 22.
2: Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. The child's father and mother marvelled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be bespoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phenuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying.
1: Simeon and Anna began to answer the question which our next song asks and then begins to answer, What child is this? point our Sunday school are going to be moving next door. In the last week or so we've spoken about what a difficult year this has been. At our carol service, we considered that for many people, it's been a year of distress, darkness, and fearful gloom. But we know that as Christians, that's not all there is to say. We saw on Christmas Day how Jesus Christ has secured the future for us. He is the one who brings his people to glory. And the passage we're going to look at this morning focuses more on the present. It tells us Jesus is with us. And he is for us in our present difficulties, whether those difficulties are great or small. So turn with me, if you have a Bible, to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And we're going to read from Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash round his chest. The hair on his head was white as wool. I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now, look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write there for what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's word. And in verse 9, we meet John who wrote this book. He says in verse 9, he is our brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom, and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. That's quite a combination. As Christians, we are a kingdom, and we suffer, and that means we are called to patient endurance. The church of Jesus Christ is the most privileged people on earth, and the church suffers, and so the church must patiently endure. And all this is because we are in Jesus. We're a kingdom because we belong to Jesus. We suffer because we belong to Jesus. And thankfully, because we are in Jesus, we are given the ability to endure patiently. We're not left to our own devices when it comes to enduring. God supplies us with power for that. And John wants us to know He's not writing this from an ivory tower, from a um, specially privileged place. He's not cut off from the painful realities of life as he writes. No, he is our brother and companion in the suffering and the blessings of this kingdom. He too faces the challenge of patient endurance. In what way does John face it? Well, he goes on to say in verse 9, I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I'm not sure whether Patmos is a holiday destination today, but in New Testament times, part of the island of Patmos was a prison colony. People were sent there if they were considered to be socially disruptive people. They were sent to Patmos to work in the stone quarries on the island. Apparently, that's how John ended up on Patmos. And what was John doing that was so socially disruptive? He was living as a faithful witness to Jesus Christ. He says he's there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, because he was sharing and living out the good news about Jesus. John lived at a time when that got you in trouble as it does in many parts of the world today. So these words are not only written to Christians who suffer, they come to us through the pen of a Christian who suffers. John has told us about his situation, and now he explains how this book came about. In verse 10, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The Lord's Day is Sunday. Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. John is writing after that event. And the early Christians chose that day as the day they would meet together to worship Jesus and to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Here John says, on the Lord's day I was in the Spirit. So apparently although John is in exile, he's cut off from his fellow believers, he is continuing to worship when he knows his brothers and sisters will be worshipping. And on this occasion, on this Lord's day, something extra happens. John is in the Spirit. God's Holy Spirit leads John into a state of prophetic vision. But in this state, before John sees anything, he hears a sign, a voice like a trumpet. So it was clear and piercing. John couldn't miss it. And the voice comes first to tell John he is being given a special responsibility. What John is about to see is not for him alone. He has the responsibility to write down what he sees for the church. Revelation is a book where many of the numbers have symbolic significance. And the number seven indicates completeness, wholeness. So these seven churches that are named represent the whole church of Jesus Christ. What John is about to see is for the whole church. But so far, John hasn't seen anything, he's just heard a voice like a trumpet. But now he turns toward the voice, and the first thing he sees in verse 12 are seven golden lampstands, like this. These are the kind of lampstands that need oil. That was the fuel that kept the flame going. And the background to this, like most of what we find in Revelation, comes from the Old Testament, Back in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, shortly after the Israelites had left Egypt, God gave Moses detailed plans for building a tabernacle. That was a tent where God said he would be present among his people. And one of the items Moses was to place in that tent was a golden lampstand. It stood there in God's presence. And now, as he shows John this vision... God is both explaining and developing the significance of the lampstand. It symbolizes God's people. No longer just believing Israelites, but God's people from every tribe, nation, people, and language. And so, instead of just one lampstand, now we have seven. And down in verse 20, the meaning is spelled out for us the seven lampstands are the seven churches. That's what the lampstands represent in this vision. And as we saw in verse 11, the seven local fellowships mentioned there represent the whole worldwide church of Jesus Christ. And if we remember the tabernacle, where the one lampstand stood in God's presence, the significance here is the same. God is truly present here among his people. Look what we read in verse 13. Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash round his chest. The focus of this vision is not actually the churches themselves. The focus is on Jesus, the one who is with his church. He is among the lampstands. You picture that in your mind. In the Old Testament, one of the priests' jobs was to tend the lampstand to make sure it had the oil it needed to keep burning brightly. And here we are to picture someone moving among the lampstands, tending to them. And the point is, the churches are not left to their own devices. They're being cared for, They're being supplied with the power they need. Who is the one moving among them? Well, I've already given you the answer. But it might not have been immediately obvious when we first read this. Because this person is referred to as being like a son of man. And what we need to know is this vision is combining two visions that were given to the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 7, and then in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel saw two figures. But here, this one figure that John sees has the characteristics of both the figures Daniel saw. Daniel saw one like a son of man, a human being. And he saw the Ancient of Days, Almighty God. And here, John sees a son of man who has all the characteristics of the ancient of days. This is a God-man. It's Jesus Christ, God the Son. And he's not to be confused with God the Father. Later on in this passage, he will say, I was dead, and now I'm alive. That is not true of God the Father. He has never been dead. So the Father and the Son are distinct persons, and yet when it comes to power and authority, Jesus can be described in the same ways as the Father. We'll see he's described in quite a bit of detail here. It's important to realize from the beginning, this description is telling us things about the character and the position of Jesus. We are not supposed to take this as a literal description of what Jesus physically looks like. In chapter 5, which we'll look at this evening, Jesus is going to be described as a lamb looking as if it had been slain. If we try and combine that description of Jesus with this one, it's just about impossible. But we're not supposed to do that. These different pictures of Jesus are telling us not what he looks like, but what he is like. They're showing us different aspects of who Jesus is. So yes, picture this in your mind. Let it teach you about who Jesus is. But don't expect to meet someone in heaven who has a sword coming out of his mouth, whose voice sounds like a waterfall, and whose feet are on fire. What this picture tells us is that Jesus is the man who is God. John sees in verse 13, he's dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet. Apparently, in Roman society, the longer your robe, the higher your rank. So only the emperor had a robe that went down to his feet. So here, John sees one who has the highest rank, and he has a golden sash around his chest. That was the high priest's uniform. And we've already seen this figure tends the lampstands just as the priest did in the Old Testament. And in verse 14, the hair on his head is white, like wool, as white as snow. In our society today, I'm not sure that we particularly honor the elderly. In many cases, they get sidelined and overlooked. But the opposite was true in biblical times. The aged were honored for their experience and their wisdom. And here, that wisdom and experience are symbolized by white hair. That's not to say that everyone who has white hair is wise. There are exceptions. But that's what it indicates here. And yet we are not to imagine Jesus is somehow weakened with age. For many of us, it's not just experience and wisdom that come with gray hair. Weakness and frailty come with it too. But not for Jesus. His eyes, we're told, are like blazing fire. He is bursting full of life. He is perfect in wisdom and experience, but he doesn't suffer From the decreased vitality that often come along with wisdom and experience. His feet, verse fifteen, are like bronze glowing in a furnace or refined in a furnace. He stands before us in absolute searing purity. And his voice is like the sound of rushing waters. It's a voice of fearsome majesty and power. In his right hand, verse 16, he holds seven stars. We'll come back to these stars later on. But whatever they are, they are in the power of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to say they are in his right hand, they're under his control. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp, double-edged sword. Here we have confirmation. We're not being given a description of what Jesus actually looks like. This picture is describing who he is. So what does this tell us about him? Very simply, he is the judge. His word rules. He pronounces the definitive verdict over every single one of us. His word has the power to condemn us or to acquit us. The book of Isaiah prophesied a servant of the Lord who would have that power. And John's gospel tells us Jesus claimed that power for himself. He said, The Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. And here in this vision, the risen Jesus is shown to have that judging power. His word is like a two-edged sword. It can acquit us or condemn us eternally. And his face is like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Have you ever tried to stare straight into the blazing sun? You can't, not without burning your eyes out. In the Old Testament, Moses said to God, show me your glory. And God said, you can't see my full glory. You can't see my face, for no one can see me and live. And now we're shown Jesus Christ has that same glory. The New Testament Gospels show us a Jesus whose full glory was veiled during his time on earth. But even during that time, John was given a brief glimpse of Jesus' full glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, just for a few moments. But by and large, Jesus hid his glory when he was on this earth. That was part of what it meant for Jesus to humble himself for our salvation but that glory always belonged to him and it will never be veiled again. At Christmas, we focus on Jesus' incarnation, the fact that he took on human flesh. And it's wonderful to know that he's our brother and our friend. It's great to know that he shares our humanity. He is truly one of us. But let's never ever forget he is not completely the same as us. He blazes with the full glory of God. Like the sun shining in all its brilliance. This is the one who is with his church today. And if you and I were shown what John has just been shown, we would probably react the way John reacts. In verse 17, he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John is experiencing the reality that a true glimpse of God's glory will sober us like nothing else will. He is our friend and our brother, but he is not, good old Jesus, our mate. when you and I recognize the glory of the one we're worshiping, our worship will be serious. Not stuffy, not uptight. That's not what I mean by serious. I mean when we see Jesus for who he is, he will get our full undivided attention. We're in the presence of one whose eyes see every corner of our hearts. We're in the presence of the one whose word decides our eternal future. And understanding that will show us the incredible seriousness of being in the presence of Jesus. And it will lead us to joy. Because even as we fall at his feet in reverence, we discover Jesus is the one who is for his church. Not only with us, but for us. Look how he deals with John in verse 17. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades meaning death and the grave. We might say, well, why is John supposed to be reassured by that? How is that supposed to help John not be afraid? Well, simply because the Jesus who holds those keys is the same Jesus who loves John, who has freed John from his sins by his blood. We were told that back in verse 5 of this chapter. And that means a glimpse of God's glory in Christ is always going to sober us, but it need not crush us. If we're trusting in Christ's death to pay for our sin, if we're living for Him as our Lord, then we don't need to fear His word of condemnation. We know He is for us. And we don't need to fear the sufferings that might be ahead of us. His right hand is for us. That's a way of saying His power is at work for our good. When we kneel before the cross in repentance and faith, then we discover this God of blazing glory is our God. His power and authority are at work for us, not against us. And one aspect of Jesus being for his church is that his angels are for his church. Earlier in this vision, he saw, uh, John saw Jesus holding seven stars in his right hand. And now in verse 20, John is told that just as the seven lampstands represent the seven churches... So the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. That's true that some Christians can get obsessed with angelic beings as if they are the main thing. But it's equally wrong to downplay angels to the point where we almost deny that they exist. The Bible doesn't give us masses of information about angels. But it gives us enough information to know angels are real. They not only attend God in heaven, they also serve as his representatives here on earth. The book of Hebrews calls them ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. And Hebrews also tells us the angels worship Jesus. And that is to be our focus as well. The angels are certainly present here in this vision, but they're very much in the background. And that's how it should be. The glorious one here, the one to be worshipped and adored, is the risen Lord Jesus. He's the center of this vision. He's the focus of the vision. And he's to be the focus of the church. He's to be our focus. And that is because our hope lies not in angels, great as they are, but our hope lies in the risen Lord who is with us and for us. And when our hope is in Jesus, when he is the focus of the church, when he is central to the church, then churches will do what lampstands do. We will be lights in the darkness. And we will experience the power and the care of the living Lord Jesus as he moves among the lampstands, tending and caring for his church. So as you look forward to the new year, as you pray about the new year, with all of its uncertainties, I would encourage you this week, pray with this vision in your mind. And remember, this is not a dream. This is reality. All that it shows us about Jesus Christ is true. His authority, His wisdom, His living power. So long as you and I are in this world, we will need to show patient endurance in the face of difficulty. But we face the future knowing the Jesus of Revelation chapter 1 is with us and he is for us. And he tells us not to be afraid because he is with us and for us. So let's take that with us into this week, into this year. And let's remember that's why we can sing, not just at Christmas, but all the year round, joy to the world. Why? Because the Lord has come. That's our final song.
0: feels
1: Christ says to his church, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Amen.